So, Phil, you and I and the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board, we have spent eight and a half hours meeting with 22 candidates on the April 6th ballot. That's like a whole day's work in and of itself. Luckily, we spaced it out over several weeks, so we didn't get spaced out. It's important that good, intelligent journalists talk to these candidates and understand who they are, and we get to know them. And on today's Center Stage with Milford and Hands, the Wisconsin State Journal's political podcast from the Sensible Center of Wisconsin Politics, we're going to play clips from six big moments during our endorsement meetings. They weren't necessarily the most controversial moments or combative. These were just six moments that really stuck out to you and I or one of us for a specific reason, and we're going to talk about that. I'm Scott Milford. I'm the editorial page editor for the Wisconsin State Journal. I'm Phil Hands. I'm the editorial cartoonist for the Wisconsin State Journal. We are half of the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board. The more endorsable half. first big moment was, yep, about that tweet. Oh, yeah. State Superintendent of Public Instruction candidate Deb Kerr got into controversy by responding to a tweet asking people to recall the first time they were called the N-word. Kerr is white, but she responded anyway, saying she had been called the N-word as a teenager because her lips were big. Lots of people were offended. Kerr apologized. We asked her what had she learned And how much should the controversy affect people's votes? Here's what she said. Well, first of all, I'm the only candidate who has worked in diverse school settings from my first day in teaching to my work in Brown Deer and the Fairbanks School District. And so my opponent has never worked in a larger district like I have. I've led a 100-employee district and then worked in the Fairbanks School District that serves 45,000 children. So I have a lot of experience. I've been on social media for years also promoting my school district. So if you if you do the hashtag team Brown Deer, you'll see all the stuff that I've been doing for years. And so sometimes we make mistakes as leaders. Because I've been an ally in this work of equity, diversity, and inclusion, I thought that was a question just being asked to anybody. And so I was just sharing a personal experience that I had in my parochial school. I think bullying and harassment happens everywhere, not just public schools. And And so I was just sharing that, but I didn't realize that that would be offensive. And so I apologized for it. And I said, you know what, we've got to own this. And so as a white privileged superintendent and a leader, white people have to stand up and disrupt racism. And so when I look at my opponent, she did not do that when a group of her students um, had a parade, a homecoming float in a parade that marginalized Hispanic and Latino and Latinx students. And so she just made a statement. She didn't apologize and she didn't realize how she marginalized those kids. And that's because she didn't have many experiences doing that. And so I'm not perfect. I'm going to persist, but I've made mistakes, but I'm also learning from it. And so one of the things that I think is important as I look at the staffing of DPI, I want to have an office of diversity and inclusion that represents the black and brown voices throughout our state, but also they need a seat at the table. And that's going to be important moving forward. And so that's why I also, uh, when I look at the diversity of DPI, there's a bunch of white people working in DPI from Madison. And so that is why I want to decentralize the DPI and make it more customer service friendly and take a more regional approach to making sure that people can work for the DPI and represent the communities that they serve. Um, I know that's going to take time. I know that's um, 
you know, uh, cause a little consternation. But you know what? We've got to do things differently moving forward. We can't be locked into the same bureaucratic um, policies that have not gotten us higher achievement. We also asked Jill Underly, Kerr's opponent, what she thought about the tweet and how important it should be to voters. You know, I wish they would pay attention to stuff like that because I, I feel that it speaks to judgment. You know, when you're in a position of um, authority like the state superintendent of public instruction, you have to exercise good judgment. And I'm not a tweeter, (laughs) you know, but I feel like when you go off the cuff on stuff like that or feel like, especially on race, when you're not a part of that conversation, you're there to listen and you're there to learn. And then by choosing to enter that conversation, that was really a bad judgment on her behalf. And I think that's what voters would, as a voter myself, that's how I would look at it. So I thought Kerr's explanation was pretty good and she's apologizing. At the same time, Underly's right, it was poor judgment. I do feel a little bit sorry for Kerr. I think she does want to try and deal with racial disparities and address achievement gaps in our schools. And if every time a white person says something dumb about race, we chop their heads off, then it's really hard to have frank and open discussions about race and how we can move past uh, institutional and systematic racism in our society. Um, At the same time, it showed a a a real lack of judgment to involve herself in that discussion and then to block people that were questioning what she did. Only cowards block other people from Twitter, you know, that's... (laughs) It's not something that I've ever done or would ever do. Kerr's right that she does come from a district with a lot more diversity. Brown Deer is about 80% people of color. It's also a pretty good district from what I understand. Yes, and Underly has been the leader at Pecatonica School District, where it's about 1% people of color. And at least according to the DPI numbers that I looked at yesterday, zero African-Americans. On paper, this race is kind of the opposite of what you think it is. I mean, we have one superintendent from a diverse school district, and we have one superintendent from a rural, very white school district. On paper, you would think that liberals would be backing one one candidate and conservatives would back the other one, but that's not what's going on in this case. I think without that tweet, the dynamic of this race changes somewhat, but the State Journal is endorsing underly both for her good judgment, for her very good record as a superintendent improving student achievement. Her school is deemed exceeding expectations. And we really liked her focus on early childhood education. She started a 4K full-time program in Pecatonica, which is down in Blanchardville, southwest of Madison, at a time when a lot of schools still don't have full-time 4K. She points to that as something that can help prevent an achievement gap if you get at some of these disparities early enough. Yeah, full-time 4K is sort is sort of like it's sort of like middle school students shouldn't start school at six o'clock in the morning because their their bodies aren't awake yet. I mean, the science has been saying full-time 4K is needed. So maybe if the Madison schools are anything like, if they can make the achievements on 4K the way they, way they have with pushing back the start time of middle school, maybe in like 30 or 40 years, we'll have full-time 4K in Madison. Underly also has been a principal. She's worked for the University of Wisconsin as an academic advisor, advising lots of different kinds of students. And she worked for DPI, which is the agency she now hopes to lead. She's very competent. She'll do a fine job. She's endorsed by the teachers union, but also very much concerned about her perception amongst 
teachers unions across the state. So I think that's sort of our biggest concern, sort of a maintaining the status quo of education, which isn't always working for a lot of black and brown kids across our state. But she did assure us that she's not going to shut down, for example, Colleen Kerr's charter school here in Madison, which we're pretty excited about. She put her kids in a religious school when they were very young, but that was before she moved to Pecatonica and put them in public schools. I think she is pretty balanced and well-rounded. I should point out that we interviewed Jill Underly via Zoom before we interviewed Deborah Kerr, so we didn't get to ask Underly about the Pecatonica homecoming float, which was controversial. There were some sombreros and there was a fence on the float, but that wasn't a float that Underly had authorized, and she definitely wasn't cool with that after she found out. I don't know all the details of who said what and when. But she's not a cookie-cutter Madison, a big government liberal. For example, she is fine with police officers in school. I think she does have a lot of pragmatism, and she's shown a lot of strong results wherever she's been. Oh, and Phil, she also teaches civics, my favorite subject, and she coaches girls softball, my favorite sport. Well, I guess then, why do we even meet with the other candidates, Scott? <laughs> All right, that was just one of the races where we met with candidates. We also met with 20 Madison City Council candidates. So for the second big moment during our endorsement process, we're going to play a clip from Patrick Heck, alderman on the Isthmus in District 2. He's running against Benji Ramirez. This is the district with the Edgewater in it. It goes from the kind of the Edgewater to Breeze Stevens Field. Maybe a little farther east of that, too. Yeah, all the way east to Tenney Park and the Har River, actually. In Madison, a lot of times, white people talk about their privilege. And often, to me, it, it comes off as I'm doing it as kind of an offering, a political offering uh, that says, I understand about issues surrounding inequity, and now let's just move on because I said the words. And what I thought was a little different about this was that Patrick's talking about white privilege, particularly the white privilege of his district and his own district needing to maybe give up some of its power. I found that uh, rather unusual and honest. He talks about sort of neighborhood associations, which is his background and how he kind of came up through the ranks um, and sort of understanding that a lot of that, you know, Madison gives a lot of weight to what neighborhood groups think about things without sort of acknowledging the fact that these are basically dominated by white people with a lot of privilege. There is a serious awareness now compared to the past about racial equity issues in, in, in District 2. So uh, even the neighborhood associations that have been uh, relatively parochial in the past, I think, are having an awakening and, and um, ready to contribute to finding solutions to the disparities that we have across so many aspects of our city. And that's, that's really encouraging. It feeds back into the housing question, I think, because I'm interested in exploring more about who has the power in terms of decision-making regarding housing. And I was privileged enough to work with a powerful neighborhood association with a powerful alder before I got elected. And I think that mostly white empowered neighborhoods like I represent. It's not entirely my district, but uh, the, you know, I, I think they're ready to start uh, giving up some of their power 
but there's going to be a lot of resistance. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to continue to working to work on those approaches about how we can share the power more equally across the city. There's a long line of alders in that district that have sort of been very opposed to development and really wanting to empower neighborhood associations and fighting over every little detail of every development that wants to go in there, you know, fighting over the color of the bricks on the building. And all of that makes, you know, housing so much more expensive in this area. And this is an area that's easily accessible by transit and it's very walkable. You don't need a car to get around. It's a prime location where people who did without as many means could really have a, a really good life without having to own a car or take a bus for two hours, get downtown. And, but at the same time, it's run by these neighborhood associations that are very picky about it, anything that goes in there, especially even affordable housing that we might want to go in there. So him acknowledging that these picky neighborhood associations are part of the problem for equity in Madison is, I think, really powerful. And we endorsed Patrick in this race. I would add that he wound up supporting the Salvation Army shelter. It's only about a block from his own residence. So that's walking the walk, not just talking the talk. All right, the third big moment from our editorial board endorsement process in recent weeks is a clip from Alderman Abbas. On the north side in District 12, we endorsed Alderman Abbas for a second term. The audio isn't great on this, but what is great is he's sticking up for density in his district when it comes to housing projects. And that's cool because it will help keep down the cost of housing. It's key to creating more affordable housing in Madison. People like density in somebody else's neighborhood. I am really trying to educate my costs about density is good for them. I know this is a very hot topic. A lot of businesses are hurting on the north side and people are closing their business. Uh, the way we can bring more businesses by improving density and, and in a way that will also stop gentrification. So there is an uphill battle. People doesn't want four stories to them. But at the same time, we need to really tell them how this is going to benefit on a greater scale. So we have four affordable housing projects. People are, have concerns on the north side. And I'm really trying hard to show them the upside of the both type of projects. Now, I love single family homes. I live in a single family home. But if you have more density when you do bigger housing projects, you have less urban sprawl out onto farm fields. You have more customers for your local businesses. You have more apartments and condos that people can afford. And the buses come around more, he said, because there's more people to pick up. He represents the district that has Oscar Meyer in it. And so there's going to be a lot of development. And I think he wants a lot of density in that as part of that redevelopment. And um, I thought he had a really good point about it. I think Abbas is a, is a real rising star. I think he's probably one of the most impressive city council candidates we spoke to this time around. He's super smart, uh, knows the issues, understands his district, and has the courage to, to make uh, hard arguments that lots of people don't want to make about density and stuff like that. Yeah, and he opposed the F-35 fighter jets, for example, at the airport there on the north side, which pretty much everybody up there was against him. Uh, we were for him, so was Tamley Baldwin, so were lots of people. He opposed the F-35s, but now that they're coming, he at least acknowledges that there's nothing we can do to avoid it, and he might as well start mitigating the harm that they're going to cause in the community. And that's his focus, as opposed to other people who are still fighting this losing battle up there. He has a very strong opponent in Tessa Echeverria, but we did endorse Abbas again. All right, our fourth big moment from our endorsement process during the recent weeks is a clip from Brandy Grayson. We did not endorse her in the, for the Southside Alderman. We went with incumbent Sherry Carter. 
What I thought was interesting about this moment is that Sherry Carter and Brandy Grayson, both African-Americans on the South Side, neither one of them wants a full-time city council. And neither does the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board. But a lot of the supporters for a full-time city council with salaries as high as $70,000 a year and four-year terms, they frame it as, oh, this is good for diversity and equity because people without as much money would be able to serve if they got a full-time salary. But it seems like most of the people pushing that are white people and a whole bunch of people of color in this town are worried that a full-time council would mean less diversity, not more. Yeah, I mean, our council is already twice as diverse as our city is. Um, and a whole lot of African-American women, especially, were running for city council this year, uh, which suggests that not being a full-time job has not uh, deterred so, uh, lots of these strong, independent black women from seeking this position. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what good a full-time council does except to give cushy jobs to real estate agents and attorneys, as lots of people have said. I don't think that we should make it a full-time job because by doing that, we we eliminate a lot of people. Like I wouldn't want to be full-time at Madison Common Council. I love my world. I love my work. Um, and I think it's a privilege for some of us who don't have to have a full-time job, that's an additional privilege. And you end up paying folks who are already privileged more money for their privilege. And then folks who, um, that we say we want diversity and those with experience and on a common council, um, then they can't pursue other parts of their worlds. And we don't want common council to be a bought. This shouldn't be a career. This should be a place where um, we have competitive campaigns and um, diversity and that we're bringing people along with us and that we're not filling this seat for too long or so long um, that we lead, leave out the folks who are coming behind us, our youth. All right. Her opponent, Sherry Carter, made a really good point on this too, but the Zoom call uh, wasn't working that day. <laughs> At least I wasn't recording it. She said that the fact that they're working so many hours for such little pay, it proves now that city council members love their community and are in it for the right reasons. You go to full time and that might not be the case. In fact, I would suggest it wouldn't be the case. Even though we didn't endorse Brandy Grayson, I couldn't think of a better way to sort of explain uh, why a full time council is a bad idea. And Samba Balda who also serves on the Madison City Council and is African-American, actually uh, an immigrant from Africa. He wrote a column for the newspaper saying he was against a full-time council because it would mean there would be less diversity on the council. All right, here's the fifth big moment. This is from the third district race on the east side. The Wisconsin State Journal is endorsing incumbent Lindsay Lemmer. But we were impressed with her opponent, especially when the issue of body cameras came up. Her opponent, Charlie Rowe, said that she's had concerns about cameras, but given her personal experience, which she details, she's all for them. There are a lot of reports out there that say the way body cams have been used and the allowance of redactions or manipulations or withholding from the public have resulted in them being primarily used to support police in their conduct. But I'm going to speak from experience. I was beaten in the former Mr. Roberts. The police were called as other people were there as well. Had a body camera been on those officers, not only would the report, but also I would have had in my hands, had the laws allowed me as a citizen to have it, 
the witness and testimony that he said, yes, I did this and yes, I'll do it again. That would have helped me. Later, two years when I had a PTSD attack in my backyard and the Madison police were called and I was assaulted by an officer, charges had been dropped, but they would have never come. I would have never, my family would have never endured what it had, had I had a body camera that said, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. So I am in favor of them 100%, but I need, I, again, it's, it's our city being transparent. It's holding police actions in full accountability. I'm, I could talk on this one all day. She makes a, a really good point. I still can't figure out why so many progressives in Madison are, have no interest in keeping police accountable with body cameras. When police act badly on camera, there are consequences. When police act badly without, without a camera, oftentimes there are not consequences for bad acting officers. Um, and so I still can't figure out why the progressives are so opposed to this uh, transparent measure that would keep our officers accountable. Charlie is a woman of color. The sixth and final big moment from our endorsement meeting, at least the final big moment that we're going to play, is our favorite topic. Nonpartisan redistricting? <laughs> no! It was State Street and turning into a promenade. We asked a lot of these groups of candidates. We met with anywhere from two to four of them at a time for Madison City Council just to create more of a conversation. But in one meeting with mostly incumbents, they were kind of spouting all the reasons uh, why the transportation department says we we have to have use State Street for buses, not for people. Yeah, they were in the pocket of big transit. <laughs> but then we had one panel that it was mostly challengers who were not on the city council and they were, I would say it's fair to say they were gaga. And I think most of the city of Madison is sort of gaga for the idea of a State Street pedestrian mall. Um, and it's just really Satya Rhodes Conway and some of the transportation officials who are really wedded to their vision for BRT, that uh, for bus rapid transit, that are sort of opposed to this idea. Um, and we sort of heard that in our meetings a little bit. And we're for bus rapid transit too, but you don't have, you. we can have bus rapid transit and a grand promenade on State Street. It's not one or the other. The transit department, the mayor thinks it seems to be one or the other. I think the rest of the city understands that we can do both. Isn't it funny though, that in a city that loves to think of itself as walkable, that we have the progressive mayor and some others arguing for concrete over parks. In a lot of cities that have pedestrian malls, they actually are considered, you know, parks. In, 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 in Boulder, Colorado, it's run by the Parks Department, their pedestrian mall. Well, this clip is from Charles Miazzi. He's the challenger in District 18 up on the north side, trying to unseat incumbent Rebecca Kemble. That's not an easy task, but we liked him a lot and we endorsed him. And he likes the idea of a pedestrian mall on State Street. Yes, I definitely do. You know, with three kids and, uh, you know, I miss the downtown area. That is just the, the heart of Madison. You know, chocolate shop. I mean, just uh, walking down State Street. And uh, so I, I think we need to think uh, creatively on uh, ways to get uh, Madison, you know, State Street, you know, humming again. Even if we tried even a pilot, you know, whether we might be doing a couple blocks, you know, block by block, but just something definitely, even just even to try a pilot, you know, I would love to try it. So, yes, I do. I'm in definitely uh, support of it. He also criticized his opponent for opposing aid to State Street, which has struggled during the pandemic and because of riots. Now more than ever, ever, we need to support economic development and also responsible growth in Madison. And we need to support downtown businesses. My opponent 
has voted against the aid to State Street businesses after a difficulty with the, that we faced with downtown during the unrest. My opponent said that providing downtown businesses, and I'm quoting this, is institutional racism. And downtown uh, Madison is a whitest neighbor in the city. 62% of the businesses on State Street are actually owned by women and minorities. Also, my opponent is against compromise of providing $250,000 aid to State Street and $250,000 in aid to minority and owned businesses. You know, that is all just simply wrong. You know, that's that's definitely a no-no. Given that this issue involves race, we'll note that Charles is black and Rebecca is white. Yeah, I, I think it just sort of illustrates that uh, people across the city of Madison from, from a diverse range of backgrounds are interested in preserving downtown Madison. And there's only, it's kind of a, vi- a vocal minority uh, on the city council that thinks that State Street is overly white and overly privileged. I think a lot of people from around the community don't feel that way. Anyway, you know, think looking back on all of these endorsements, I know it's a, it's a lot of work for us, but it is probably the most important work that we do with editorial board. A lot of voters don't really get to know these candidates. We aren't inundated with ads for city council candidates. You know, these are going to be close races without a lot of voting. And our input can really shape the way people see the races, you know. So I always say this is, while it's hard and it's kind of a slog, it's some of the most important work we do. Do you agree with me, Scott, on that? It's a very big time commitment, but we learn a lot and we try to share what we learn with our readers. So, yeah, I think it's important. Our theme music is by Tube Tester.